question was asked a very, very long time ago. Millions upon millions of people have proven that the answer is a resounding no. Lazarus was dead. His sister ran to Jesus. Said, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. But is anything too hard for God? Even the dead, buried, decayed. When God said, Come forth, Lazarus, had to get up and walk out of the doors of the tomb. To live again. There's nothing too hard for God. Nothing. And I count on it. Because I've never found a man that can take away my sins. I've never found anybody that's come back from the other side of this life that said, I know the way to heaven. Nobody but him. Count on on there not being anything too hard for God. Because I want to go home to be with Him. This world is not toward us as before. I want to go home to be with the Lord. Amen. If you go with me tonight to the book of Joel, chapter 2. Cool. Yeah, I'm thankful for those of you that are cool. here. And I, I truly hope that our folks, I know some are not feeling well. I know sometimes it's hard to to stay focused when you're not feeling well, but I'm hoping that ours are able to, to join tonight online because I know that God has given us something tonight. It doesn't mean that I expect to you know, somehow become some greater preacher than what I am, but I know that God has put this on my heart for you and I in this church. So one way or the other, God knows what He's doing. He knows what He's doing. Joel chapter 2, begin just a few verses in verse 12. Bible says, Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God? Blow the trumpet inside. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. But I want to focus our attention on the latter part of this reading in verse 17. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, Give not thine inheritance to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, 
Where is their God? God forbid, I know the world lies, I know the world deceives, and I understand all that, but God forbid they ever be justified in their question. When they look at the church of the living God and say, Where is your God? God forbid there ever be a day that you can't walk into an apostolic church and know that God is there. But the key among many of the things that are listed here, key that I want to preach and teach about tonight, says, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch of the altar. Let them weep between the porch and the altar. Now, I want to preach again tonight about the blueprint of the church. Would you lift up your hands and voices? Would you give God glory with me? Lord, we love you. There's nobody like you, God. There's no God but you alone. We lift up the name of Jesus above every name because you already have. Lord, Lord, we trust in your name. Lord, we call upon your name tonight. Lord, that you would minister to us. Lord, that you would provoke something in us. Lord, that we would cry out unto you. Cry out unto you from before the altar. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing for the word of the Lord. Last week this I began this series, and it won't do it for a little while until the Lord gets done with it with us. But it was it's really all about how, how the church works and, and what we should be doing as a church. You know what? What does the Acts chapter 2 church look like? What does the Acts chapter everything else, chapter 1,432,327 look like? Because we're still living in the book of Acts today. What, what should the church of the living God have within it on a, on a daily, a weekly, you know, on an annual basis? How should we do church so that we make sure that we don't fall short of what God has called us to do? And last week we, we looked into the Word of God and we, we learned how we should approach God and how we should approach the church, how we should prepare ourselves to come to the house of God. And the Word tells us that we should do it with a true heart. We should do it with, excuse me, with full assurance of faith that we should have our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We need to get serious about praying for the church. Uh, I'm not one of those that says that, that prayer has to meet a certain time limit. I, I understand that it, that it takes varying degrees of time for somebody to get done in prayer what needs to get done. But I've come to tell you whether it's 15 minutes or 1500 minutes, we need to get about doing it. We need to get back to seeking the face of God, not just for our needs, not just for our troubles, not just for our problems and our healings, but so that when we come into the doors of His church, that every lost soul that will walk in beside us 
would be convicted of their sins, drawn to an altar of repentance, that we could bury them in baptism in the name of Jesus, and that He would fill them with the Holy Ghost. There are no off days for the church. You see that even in the New Testament when the Lord would pull away for rest, and yet the people would still find it. And when the people would come, the Lord would still minister to them because He loved them that much. We've got to get serious about seeking God for the church. The very first thing, the, the primary thing that will determine whether we ever win souls, whether we ever grow, whether we ever save even our own families, is are we willing to spend time in prayer? Because prayer moves heaven. Programs don't move heaven. Organization doesn't move heaven. Administration doesn't move heaven. All those things are important, but they don't move heaven. Prayer moves heaven. And heaven moves the earth. We need to get serious about praying for our church. So if we go back, and we talked a little bit last week about how this, this, this connects back to not just the, the, the church services that they had even in Jesus' day, which would have been synagogue services that kind of took on a New Testament twist once people started getting filled with the Holy Ghost, but all the way back to the temple or to the tabernacle, to the original house of worship, the original house of prayer. And if, if you think back about the tabernacle and how God had established how man would have a relationship with him, what was the main objective about one's approach to God's house? What was the, the thing that, that somebody, that anybody had to get to to have anything happen in their life? It was the altar. It, it was the beginning of everything. It was the, the start of of their relationship with God and it predated even the tabernacle because in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and found themselves naked and covered themselves up with fig leaves God came down and said oh well, that's not enough and he made them coats of skins well the only way they had coats of animal skins is that an animal had to die before there was ever a tabernacle there were men laying sacrifices on altars to God. The beginning point of yours, of mine, and of any sinner in this world that needs God. The beginning point of their walk with God has always been and always will be the altar. The scripture talked about our bodies being washed with water. We, we, we've covered that already. We know that we had to, you had to cleanse yourself. You had you couldn't get to the altar without cleansing. You had to be clean. You had to purify yourself. You had to make sure your clothes were, weren't soiled. And you had to make sure that everything was taken care of in your life. And we understand that. We understand that when you come to God, when you come to the altar, that the purpose of coming to the altar is to repent of your sins. The purpose of being baptized in His name is so that those sins could be washed away. That's not news to any of us tonight. The book of James chapter 4. Again, James always puts it so, so, so bluntly and so, so clearly. He says in chapter 4 and verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. I don't understand why this whole world, lock, stock, and barrel, believes in this false doctrine that you don't ever have to change anything in your life, because my Bible's filled with it. My Bible says if you're going to come to God, you've got to cleanse your hands. You've got to stop sinning. You've got to purify your hearts. But then he goes on to say, Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of God and He shall lift you up. But I want you to remember something else from last week. It's all the way back in Exodus chapter 9. Something that, that God mentioned and I mentioned to you. It's almost like we, we run past that to get on to the rest of the, the escapades of the children of Israel as they roamed around in the wilderness and as they entered into Canaan. But in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 5, God speaks something to them. says, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. There was always a process for man to get to God. Like I said, even before the tabernacle, there was always a process in which man had to approach God. But the day came when God called them out of Egypt, made them a nation, gave them his laws, and said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Something else got added into the equation. The approach to God really did not change. It still required a man to turn from his sins. It still required a man to approach an altar. It still required something to die and blood to be shed on that altar. There was not only a process now to get to God, but there would also be a priest to go through to get to God. You didn't come from the tribe of Levi. You didn't come from the family of Aaron. You were never going to get into the presence of God. You were never going to go into the holy place. And even among the sons of Aaron, there was only one of them one day a year that was going to go into the presence of God. The process was still the same, but now there would be a man that would have to stand in the gap. Now there would have to be a man that would have to do the dirty work. Now there would have to be a person, an individual, that would stand between them and God. Now I want you to hold on to that. What was the main job of the priest? The priest's job was to prepare sacrifices. When the sacrifices came, it was them that knew exactly how God wanted it killed and how he wanted it cut up and 
and how he wanted the pieces and the parts laid upon the altar and what he wanted left in the fire and what he wanted removed from the fire and how the fire was supposed to be burning. It was him that knew all of that. It was the job of the priest to prepare and to give offerings to the Lord that people would bring to the house of God for peace or for a right relationship with God or for sin, for whatever it may be. It was his job to prepare those and to offer them to God. It was also his job to teach by example the difference between what is right and what is wrong. We find much later in Scripture in the book of Ezekiel chapter 22 that the prophet begins to speak in verse 26 and say, Her priests have violated thy law and have profaned thy holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and profane. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean. And have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths. And I am profaned among them. It was the priesthood's job to show the people in the life that they live day in and day out, in the manner by which they went about doing everything, what was right and what was wrong, what was holy and what was unholy. I've come to tell you, church, if this world ever wants to know how to please God, if this world ever wants to know what it looks like when a man or a woman has sold their soul to God and given Him everything, they better see it when they look at the church. You come too late to tell me we're supposed to look like everybody else and sound like everybody else and walk and talk like everybody else. God has said, come out from the him and be ye separate. So that is what the priesthood was there for under the first covenant. They were the ones that went between. They stood between the people and God. There was even a time when a plague had gone out from God to destroy the people. And Moses began to say, you need to run real fast. Come on, brother priest. Go and get, some, get, 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 a, get a container and get some incense and run out amongst the people so that God will stop. And when God saw the man and the offering before him, the plague stayed. That was the job, the priesthood under the first covenant. So what are we? Those of us that are no longer living under that covenant because God fulfilled it and moved it out of the way and put a new covenant inside of us. So what are we? The apostle Peter, that same Peter that was there on the birthday of the church that stood up and preached the first salvation message 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. The Bible says to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. He also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Things have changed in the sense that it's not based on your bloodline any longer. Or is it? 
Things have changed in that I don't need to show up with a pedigree that has Aaron at the top of it. Because things have changed in that any man that comes with faith in the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, any woman that has faith in God in obedience to his word has direct access to the presence of God. You and I tonight have the same high privilege that the high priest had. All we got to do is walk into the doors of the house of God and walk right into his presence and be in the midst of that same glory that he was. Anyone, the blood of Jesus flowing through their veins has access to the spirit and the presence of God. But I would submit to you tonight that the role of the priesthood, which we have already seen testified, belongs to you and I. The role as a church. We are just all become priests unto God, which is a fulfillment of what God wanted in the first place. Can you imagine? I don't know if the apostles realized it on that day or not, but that one little passage out there in the wilderness spoken to their ancestors and their forefathers that said, I want to make you a kingdom, a priest unto me. For so long it was just one tribe, but on the day of Pentecost, he brought it to pass. But the job description hasn't changed. We've been called to offer up sacrifices, just spiritual sacrifices. We've been called to do service and to be in attendance at the altar of God every day that we live. Now let's go back to where we started. You see, things are not going all that well in the book of Joel. Joel chapter 1, verse 1, says the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, ye old men, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Have this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers. Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. That which the pollen worm hath left, hath the locust eaten. And that which the locust hath left, hath the canker worm eaten. And that which the canker worm hath left, hath the caterpillar eaten. That's a long agricultural way of saying all is lost. Everything's destroyed. He said, have you ever seen it like this? Oh, I know there's been dark days in human history. I understand that. I understand that none of us walked through the Holocaust. I understand that none of us have sat in trenches in world wars. I know that we've been through a pandemic, but there have been pandemics much worse than the one we went through. I understand all of those things, but I've also come to tell you, at least in my generation and in my children's generation, I've never seen our world be as crazy as it is right now. Now, the book doesn't really tell anybody exactly when this prophecy was uttered. There were some, one commentator says that 
that some say the prophecy was said in those seven years in which Elisha said, For the Lord hath decreed a famine. And that they took place during the days of Jehoram, son of Ahab. I don't know whether that's when it took place and when the prophecy was or not. However, because we are an Acts chapter 2 church, we know that the book of Joel has prophetic significance beyond this day. You don't have to get very far. I mean, after all, we are. This is that church, right? This is that that was spoken of by the prophet Joel. So, God's people were, were living in a time of judgment. God's people were, were living and, and going through terrible things because of their sins. Because of their wickedness and the wickedness of their kings. They were dealing with those things, and yet the prophet also prescribes the remedy. I've already read in verse 12 of the next chapter, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye to me even with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, with mourning. Are we really praying like we ought to be when the world is upside down as it is? Rend your heart and not your garments. Turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Rend your heart and not your garments. Take down the picket signs. Get off the protest lines. Get off the, the television channel that's publishing the garments that they're publishing, and go get in the prayer closet and say, God, we need you to move today. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, eat a meat offering and a drink offering to the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. It basically says, let every man be on deck. Let every person get out of their bed and get out of their hiding place. Let every person that's been sitting down and been sitting on the rocking chair on their front porch get up and start to seek the Lord. Because who knows if God will steal your work. If you're tired of looking around and seeing empty pews. If you're tired of crying, crying yourself to sleep because you've got lost children and lost grandchildren and lost spouses, then it's about time that we gather together and we rise up and we touch heaven because who knows I told you it's verse 17. 17 that the Lord would put in our hearts tonight. Let the priests. Let the priests. The ministers of the Lord. Weep between the porch of the Lord. I understand this was spoken to the priests of that day, to the leaders, to those that were of the tribe of Levi. But haven't we established that you and I are the holy priesthood of the God? We don't even have to be Bible scholars to know that our world needs God. 
So if we are the new covenant priests unto God, if we are a holy nation, are we supposed to do the same thing? Yeah. Now let's start preaching. What does this mean? What does it mean to weep between the porch and the altar? Remember that the ordinary man that walked up to God's house never got beyond the altar. He didn't have that prerogative. He didn't have that privilege. It didn't matter how far he'd come and how much money he spent to get there. It didn't matter what his last name was. It didn't matter what good things he'd done or what bad things he'd done. As far as he got, the altar, the sacrifice died there. He went on. Because going past the altar was the domain of the priest. Only the priests went into the holy place. Only the priests could go in there and look at that candle. Only the priests could go in and eat of that bread. Only the priests could go in and, and smell of that incense. And, and it was under God's command that nobody else ever make that incense for any of it was the domain of the priest. It was the priest that would come to the laver and wash. When he got up in the morning and went to do to punch his time card at work, it was the priest that would come to the laver to wash himself. And then it was the priest that would leave the laver and walk over to the altar and take your sacrifice. Cut it into pieces, arrange it on the bread, and offer it to God so that you might have grace and mercy. The priest was the intercessor. The priest was the only one that could lead a lost soul down the path to redemption. <coughs> So if we are God's priesthood, where does that leave us in relation to the world that we're living in right now? What is it that God has truly called you and I to do? If the only chance, the only hope, the only opportunity that a lost soul has to ever get to God is going to come at the hands of an intercessor, then what is it that we ought to be filling our days and our weeks and our months and our years with doing if we are God's priesthood? We know the answer. We know that it is you and I that are called to stand in that place and do that work. We know that a lost world is only going to be saved if we preach the gospel to them. And I've come to tell you, it takes more than just preaching the gospel. I'm not making a lot of preaching the gospel. 
That's how we're saved. But I've come to tell you, we've lived around enough devils long enough in our life to know that it don't always come easy. You don't get up and just read Acts 2.38 and somebody come to the altar. I know some people do. I wish more people did. But I've also come to tell you that the disciples showed up one day and they walked around with some of God's holy magic, casting out demons and devils. They run into one that wouldn't move. And when they asked the Lord why, he said, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. That was something that until they took up the mantle, until they put on the ephod, until they put on the, the, the headdress of the priesthood of God. So I want to ask you this question because it why weeping? Why weeping? I understand that we often cry when we pray. And I know that we cry when we seek God for our children and for our grandchildren and our spouses because we love them so dearly and we don't want to see them lost. But why weeping? How weeping? And I've been asked a question before, you know, if you see a circumstance that not just take someone's life, and you just have a, just a moment to respond and react, to go and attempt to save them, but saving them may very likely cost you yours. It's easy to answer that question when it's one of your own. Your child is standing in the street and the speeding car is coming down the road. It doesn't matter to you whether you live and see the other side or not. The only thing that matters to you is that you get them out of harm's way. But what about when it's somebody else's child? Oh, it's easy to say that about a child. What about when it's a grown man or a grown woman? What about when it's your enemy? How do you weep for the nation that deserved its punishment? How does the priest that in all likelihood lived his life? I understand there were failed priests. I understand there are wicked priests. But there are also instances in Scripture where there are faithful priests. What do you do when you're the faithful one? That you stood on the street corners when you got off of work from working at the altar all day. And you said you gotta repent. You gotta stop serving those gods. You gotta stop walking down that road. You gotta clean up the house. And nobody listened. How do you weep when you're Noah and you spent a hundred years building a boat and not one living soul that's not your family got on it? Scripture says, let them say, spare thy people, O Lord. Give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, where is their the priests were told to go there and pray for therefore and no more. They were to pray for the nation. 
They were to pray for the whole family of God. They were to pray for those that were trying to be right and those that were reprobates. They were to pray for those that had stood faithfully in God's laws. And they were to pray for those that were serving Baal and Molech and everything else out there. They were to pray that the powers of this world wouldn't have power over them any longer. That they wouldn't bow their knees to another God. That the power of God would be at work in every one of their lives. So I would ask you this. What are we in this thing for? What we come to this house three times a week for? Is it not so that sinners will be saved? Is it not so that chains of bondage will fall out of their lives and be broken? Is it not so that the most dying world will have the God that we serve and work in Come on, preacher, isn't that just about preaching the word? Isn't that just about speaking the authority of God? Why we? Why pour out tears? Aren't we just to lay out the gospel for them and protect them? Aren't we just supposed to be the most effective communicators that we can be and make sure that we push it out in as many mediums of communication as we possibly can and just leave it up to them? There's the gospel. You've heard the word. Obey and live, disobey it and die. I'm not going to tell you tonight there's not some other meanings here in this scripture. Maybe there's something else here too. If you dig deeper, if you find it, let me know. I'd sure like to know. But I have come to give you what God gave me from it. Remember the first stop that the priest ever made on his way to the altar. He didn't get to go from the house to the altar. He had to go to the labor first. So I know, I know, I know that you know that, that you got to be clean to do God's work. you got to live a godly life. you got to get sin out of your house. I understand all that. But he had to do something else. There's only one way for you to know if your face is clean. You have to see it. There's a lot of your body you can look down, you can look around, and you can you can gauge whether you've gotten yourself clean or not, but you can't see your own face without seeing a reflection of it. You couldn't know that you were clean without looking down into your own reflection. Back in verse 38, we find what just seems like another one of those many minuscule details about. The tabernacle. Acts 38 verse 7 says he put the stains into the rings on the sides of the altar to bear it with all. He made the altar hollow the boards. And he made the laver of brass and the foot of it of brass of the looking glasses of the women assembling which assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. 
But Israel marched out of Egypt. Whether they were their own, or whether they were of the many things that the Egyptians gave them as they were hurrying them out the door. They had in their possession brass looking glasses. Heroes. That the women would use to look at their appearance to make sure that they had gotten it exactly like they wanted it to be. And it was of that material. Of that material that the labor was made. We all understand that water casts a reflection of us when we look into it if it is still. In addition to it simply being water, the entire structure was made highly reflective metal. Every time the priest showed up for work, every time he walked into the court of the Lord to take up his holy responsibility at the altar, he had to get up close and personal with his own self. Every spot, every blemish, every imperfection, every day. Look at Leviticus chapter 21. There's something very interesting here again. It, it's in the book of Leviticus, which is so easy sometimes to write off because there's just all these details that why, why are they there? Verse 16 says, The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron, saying, Whosoever he be of thy seed in their generations, talking about those that are going to serve in the priesthood, that hath any blemish, do. let him not approach to offer the bread of his God. If you were blemished, you couldn't serve. It didn't matter that Aaron was your great man. It didn't matter that you were born with the right family. It didn't matter that you had spent all of your, your early life preparing for the responsibilities. If you had a blemish, you couldn't come into his presence. But whatsoever man he needed to have the blemish, he shall not approach. A blind man or a lame, he to have the flat nose or anything superfluous. Or a man that has broken footed or broken handed. Or crook back or dwarf, or that have the blemish in his eye, or be scurvy or scabbed, or have the stones broken. No man that have the blemish of the seed of Aaron the priest shall come nigh to offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire. He hath a blemish. He shall not come nigh to offer the bread of his God. He shall eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy. Only he shall not go in into the pit nor come nigh unto the altar, because he hath a blemish, and he profane not my sanctuaries. For I, the Lord, do sanctify. There's another scripture in the Bible very plainly and clearly says, Be holy, for I am. Now, I understand that it was Israel's job obey these laws. And no doubt they did, at least for a period of time. No doubt there were those that were born in the right family, had the right upbringing, but somewhere along the line something showed up in their body and the day would come when the priest would say, I'm sorry. 
You can eat the bread, you can live in the tent, but you can't come to God's house. I know that if they found these things present in their life, they couldn't minister. But don't you also know? Because the men, just like you and I, that they had to know, even without a cookie back, broken feet, even without scars in the face and disease in their body, they were. They were. Maybe their back was straight, their feet were solid. But in their heart, they knew they were feelings of in their minds, they knew there were thoughts that didn't belong there. Science and genetics would tell us that that far down, even then, in human history, genetics would not have produced perfection. Once sin was entered into the equation, perfect humans were never born. Adam and Eve were made perfect in the hands of God. All of the rest of us Somewhere, somehow, the greatest. So every time that the priest was preparing for what he was about to do, and he saw his face in that glass, he knew he wasn't perfect. He knew that deep down, he was a sinner too. He knew that no matter how cleaned up he might look, how nice of clothes he might now be wearing, no matter what he looked like on the outside and what everybody else thought about what he looked like on the outside. He knew those whose hearts were sincere before God, they knew that the only reason they were there, the only reason they were able to minister, the only reason they were able to make the trip from the labor to the altar to do the holy work of God was not because they were perfect and not because they were unblemished, but it was only because of the grace and the mercy of God. At our best, we are sinners saved by the grace of God. The last thing he and the last thing that you and I should see before we make that walk from where we're at to that sinner that needs somebody to touch God from him. The last thing that we see is our own reflection of our own weakness and our own frailty and our own sinfulness. And how should this, how must this change how we walk across the way together? You see, church is not just about our approach to God. It's also about our approach to the lost. See, it's great to have a good old shouting time. It's great to have good Bible study and be strengthened in your faith. It's great to be able to walk in the doors of the holy place and 
sit down by the light of the candle and eat the holy bread and rest and have peace in the middle of the aroma of God's presence. But I also come to tell you that the moment a sinner walks into the room, the moment that somebody that doesn't know God walks into this building, the moment that somebody that, that picks you up, that moment when you remember the God that picked you up, when you, when you used to be where they are right now, when you're reminded of the God that took a mess that you made out of your life and made you to look what you look like today. The moment that they walk in the doors of this house is the same moment that we got to look down into that water and be reminded, God, I was where they were. God, my heart was where their heart is. God, I was lost just like they are lost. God, let me help me to save Hallelujah. He said, weep. Between the porch and the altar, between the place where the sinners can go no farther, and to the door of the house of God. When you see a sinner walking to the church, what goes through your mind? You see a good for nothing nobody. You see somebody who deserves what's happened to him. You see her just getting what's coming to her. And after all, you told her so. But do you see yourself? Just a little while ago. Do you remember when you wanted to die? When you thought nobody cared. When you were ready to walk out into eternity lost. But in just the nick of time. And not because you deserved it. And not because you did anything but earn it. But simply because he loved you. He came down and saved you from your sins. Because I've come to tell you. And that's not what you're thinking of. You need to find yourself a place to pray tonight and let God show you your reflection one more time. Because if you remember the pit of hell that God brought us out of, every time we go to work, every time we go to school, every time we walk down the street, it'll change our prayer, it'll change our behavior, it'll pierce our heart. I wonder, God, the next time somebody walks in, we're not thinking, is this guy a security risk? Is he just here for some money? Is this another person that's just going to stroll in and stroll out and never come back? I wonder, God, when they walk in the door, we'd be moved in that instant to start touching heaven to him. They don't even have to know it. They don't even have to know what you're doing. You can see him walk in and our hands go up. God, we're going to reach you tonight. God, call in our hearts to 
Serving God is not just walking past the altar on which God's already found the Christ for your sins. And walking up to that pool of water to make sure you get all yesterday's sins and uncleanness. That's not the end of it. But when you get to the water, do you forget who you were? Do you forget where God brought you from? Do you forget what God's done for you? Because the rest of the truth is that you can't just live right. But you've got to visit those that have no idea. The widows and the fathers, those in this world have forsaken. Those who don't have a God. Those who don't have anybody to pray for them. Those who don't have anybody to tell them the truth. Those who don't have anybody to preach the gospel to them. There will be souls that are baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost, and walking in godly lives in a lot of ways that are going to be lost because they forgot what God did for them. And they never become a witness to anybody else. God forbid that when I take up my place between the door of God's house and the altar of sacrifice, that it doesn't drive me to cry out in my lungs. When I see them, I want to see myself when I was given up, when I was walking away, when I was covered in sin. And I'm going to tell you, if God saved me, He'll save you. Along with somebody to pray. You don't need an invitation to God's house. I want somebody to pray. God, give me a burden for lost. Change how I see them. Change how I view them. God, I'm going to What you say? Show us what we used to be. Remind us of what we 